0: Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from NHS
1: Somerset, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend. Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and NHS Somerset Clinical Lead for Mental Health.
0: And I think our guest today, Peter, is actually you.
1: (laughs) I think it is, Andrew.
0: Yes. you're, You're going to talk to us about new ways of thinking. So that as a title intrigues me. What's new ways of
1: thinking all about? Well, I'd, I'd like to pretend it's new ways of thinking completely. It's new ways of thinking of mental health, really. So there have been some interesting developments over the past couple of years. And um, I've, I've done a presentation to GPs, and I thought it might be interesting to, to share some of the, the researching that I've, I've been doing, uh, looking into this with our listeners. That's great. So what topic would you like to start us with? Well, should we start with Depression. Um, because that's a a very common mental health issue, isn't it, that a lot of us will have experienced. And um, people may have heard of NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Uh, And and although it it gets a bit of a bad press in some places, it does do good work in looking at the evidence, looking at what are the best ways of treating things. And I think one of the nice things about it uh, is that it doesn't just look at drug therapies it looks at other treatments as well. That's
0: interesting, because I think some new guidelines came out in 2022 from NICE. And what's
1: what's the news for us? Well, the news is basically that as GPs, we should be much more cautious in reaching for our prescription pad and prescribing antidepressants. And we kind of thought we had depression sewn up, I think. We thought, oh, yes, we know that it's due to lack of serotonin. We've got this group of drugs or the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. We prescribe those that corrects the imbalance and that treats the depression. And we're realizing that that's not really the case at all. So um, there was one bit of research coming out showing that actually there's no consistent evidence of an association between serotonin and, and depression. So that kind of knocked the legs right out from under us in terms of that theory. And then there was another piece of research, and, and there have been several bits of research on this done, showing that about half of people who take antidepressants get emotional blunting. So, yes, it reduces our distress and our depression, but it also reduces happiness and feelings generally. And I'm, I'm sure you've had patients come back to you reporting this, haven't you, Andrew.
0: Absolutely. And I suppose the big thing, Peter, is that when you and I trained as doctors, depression was a very clear clinical entity. Um, One would have slow speech. One would look under the weather or slow. You might have lost weight. Your appetite was down. Your mood was low, particularly in the mornings, and it might lift through the day, something called diurnal variation. And depression of that sort, Biological depression was important to treat, um, and, uh, and we did treat it, and that's what we learned about. And the word depression has sort of caught up a lot of other things over the last few years um, to do with low mood, which isn't depression. And so I suspect that many as of us of doctors who would have treated that sort of depression with antidepressants, which would have been the tricyclics uh, and then the SSRIs, um have actually perhaps been tempted into medicating
1: misery is that an unfair is that a very unfair um comment no i don't think it's unfair at all i mean there's a this hot topic about when does natural sadness become depression and you can you can pick on a few artificial things and say oh well when you get this what we call it, anhedonia, don't we? This lack of being able to take pleasure in things that we would normally enjoy. Then that means it's depression rather than sadness. But I think there is this huge overlap. And a lot of people would would say that the medical model uh, is probably the wrong one for this more low-level unhappiness.
0: So it sounds from what you're saying as though the medical model has taken us on a pendulum swing to quite a lot of prescribing for depression. And now we're being asked or it's being suggested that there are other ways of approaching it. Is
1: that right? Yeah, absolutely right, Andrew. And I mean, the other thing that's come along that, that's pushed that pendulum back a bit, a bit is that we now realise that quite a lot of people on antidepressants uh, have withdrawal effects when they come off. And and this is something now that we explicitly have to warn patients before we, we prescribe. So that's another reason for trying to avoid um, antidepressants. But perhaps the most powerful one of all is that when you do the studies and you look at recovery rates from people with this mild to moderate depression, actually, there are much more effective treatments out there. So even without these side effects of emotional blunting, and um, perhaps becoming hooked on them, there are other things out there that work better. And that's basically our old friends, the talking therapies. Interesting. So talking therapies, tell us which ones are important and which ones work, and maybe something about non-medical prescribing as well. Yes, absolutely. So um I mean nice actually list these in in order of effectiveness and and top of the the list comes our old friend cognitive behavioral therapy that you and I have talked about an awful lot in the past. And the concept really is that rather than the 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 brain being deficient in serotonin, it's the pathways between nerves get in little rabbit wheels where we go round and round in circles. Uh, thinking the same thoughts, and that what we need to do is to—it's called neuromodulation. But we need to change these pathways between nerves, and that by doing talking therapies, you can just make your brain get into different habits, different ways of thinking. You can challenge negative thoughts, you can challenge established habits of thinking, and that by doing this, you can actually make your brain work in a different way. So it's—it's it's kind of—it's much more active. It's physiotherapy for the the brain. Uh, In the same way that if we have a muscle injury, we might take painkillers and the antidepressants are kind of emotional painkillers. But actually what we need to do is retrain our body in different ways.
0: I love that uh, phrase physiotherapy for the brain. In in my own mind, it came gymnastics. And then I saw pictures of the Olympics and I thought, oh dear, I can't do
1: that. Whereas physiotherapy, we can all benefit from physiotherapy. We don't have to do gymnastics. Absolutely. And we talked before, haven't we, about the benefits of exercise and how we can improve where we are from whatever stage we're at. But you mentioned other, you mentioned other things as well. So they, the other talking therapies that have been looked at um, are, are beneficial, but so is general stimulation. So is um, exercise, as we've talked about. And when you are depressed, you want to go hide away in a corner, don't you? Yes. Um, and some patients actually take to their bed. And that's absolutely the worst thing that you can do. So, forcing yourself to get out in nature, to do things, to interact with people, even if it's the last thing we feel like doing, can bring its own benefits.
0: So, uh, activity, contact with nature, contact with other people, all now recommended by NICE?
1: Yes, a- absolutely. Yes. Um, maybe even listening to podcasts though we're not actually listen, listed in the NICE guidelines yet. Perhaps when they revise it next time around, uh, we will be. But just making our brains think in different ways is much more powerful. And to me, it's much nicer. If, if I've got a problem, I'd much rather be given a set of tools to deal with it myself than handed pills and told, well, that will put you right. And I just passively take the pill every night.
0: So one of the things about being handed pills is that we've got it in our hands now. We can use it immediately. Uh, but as you say, it's a very passive thing. Um, one of the things that frightens people about uh, talking therapies is that, you know, there may be a very long waiting list. You know, people are worried that it may be months and months and months uh, and, uh, and also that it's hard work. Can you help us? Are those, are those true or are those
1: myths? Well, certainly in Somerset, our waiting lists are very good. Um, so I better give a, a plug to our, our, local talking therapies. And if, if people want to, they don't need to go through the GP. They can just, uh, look on a search engine, uh, for Somerset talking therapies. They can go onto their website, uh, and they can book actually online now. They don't even need to wait to discuss it with somebody so they can, they can book straight away and provided they're reasonably flexible with times. Then the waiting lists aren't long. There are also some good resources on that website that people can look at booklets that that give you some self-help tips. So So waiting time's an issue in some areas, but locally not too bad. You mentioned, is it hard work? I'd come back to physiotherapy. You know, if you're being taught to rehabilitate your muscles, then yes, it is hard work. And I think exactly the same applies, um, A lot of people will find that challenging their regular habits of thought takes effort. So I I wouldn't shy away from that. But that's good, isn't it? Don't we all like a challenge? And the benefits are huge. Absolutely. And depression is one of the most miserable things that you can uh, suffer from. They've they've done trials, haven't they, of, of patients who've had both cancer and depression and said, if you could get rid of one of your conditions, which would it be? And depression is the one that people choose that they would get rid of. So it it's a horrible, horrible, debilitating thing to to have.
0: Yes, how very interesting. Well, we've talked about the benefits of nature before and how lucky we are in, in Somerset. And we've had podcasts on the, the benefit of nature and uh, emotional and mental health. So I'm sure this is something that's going to come around again and again and again. And maybe nice will be. I don't. I don't know if it'll be recommending living in Somerset,
1: but uh, certainly exposure to nature is so powerful. There's lots of really interesting evidence already about that. Um, I remember some while ago a study showing that if you're recovering from an operation and you have a window that looks out on trees, you're you get. Better twice as quickly and with half the number of infections. So it has those tangible benefits. It's not just something airy-fairy and woolly. It it has real physiological effects.
0: Fascinating. Is there any other news about depression that we should be aware about,
1: Peter? Yes. Well, you mentioned um, that we were taught at medical school about the more severe forms of depression. In those days, it was often labelled... Biological depression, uh, and and there is movement on that as well. So now it tends to be labelled treatment resistant depression (TRD), and that's there's no exact definition, but it, it's basically somebody who's been on a couple of antidepressants and, and not responded to them. And there's quite a proportion of people who do that. Now, traditionally, all you would have to offer in in situations like that. Uh, would be uh, something like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which still has a place, still recommended by NICE, but it's a pretty invasive thing. I I don't know if you've known patients who've gone through ECT, but it's a a big thing to go through, isn't it? Uh,
0: It it is, and it was quite commonly used or more commonly used when I was a, a houseman in 1986. But I have to say, I saw it save somebody's life. Somebody who had a severe psychotic depression, uh, a man in late middle age who was convinced that the world was going to end, but part of it was his fault. So he had delusions of guilt, he had delusions of nihilism, uh, and he had an agitated depression. And in his case, uh, ECT was absolutely and completely life saving. to the point where six months later I was in an antiques fair in a town a few miles away and uh, somebody came up to me uh, and touched my shoulder as I was looking at the cutlery with my wife, secondhand cutlery, and he said, I shouldn't buy any of those knives if I were with you, not nearly sharp enough. And there, here was this gentleman who had completely recovered, complete perspective and got closure on what was really quite a dreadful situation.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And it, it can be life saving, but it it feels quite a medieval thing. So people have, have have looked at saying, well, it seems that somehow stimulating the brain can reset things. And that and that's what's happening in ECT, though we don't quite understand how it works. Are there less invasive ways that we can look at stimulating the brain? And and there have been a couple of things that are looked at. So vagal nerve stimulation is one. And that's actually something that we've been trialing in Somerset for a couple of years now. Uh, and, and that does seem to work for a lot of people. It It's mildly invasive. You've got to have a, a small operation that that places a, a stimulant uh, under the skin. Um, but it, it seems to be very helpful, particularly in people who have suicidal thoughts. And as, as we know, another of the problems problems with antidepressants is that they actually increase the risk of suicide in the first few weeks.
0: Some of them do, don't they? And that's, and the reason for that is because sometimes or often in severe depression, both mood is low and motivation is low. And if motivation returns before mood lifts, then we have a dangerous situation where somebody uh, has motivation to carry out acts which relate to their mood.
1: Absolutely, and as we know, there's a, a lag. There's about a, a two-week delay, isn't there, between starting to take antidepressant tablets and it having any benefit in mood. So vagal nerve stimulation is is good in that it doesn't seem to give this spike in uh, suicide, and it's helpful in this very difficult group of patients who've who've tried all the standard things and not got benefit, and then another one that's sort of similar really it's the same kind of idea again we don't quite know how it works but it it does work there's a thing called transcranial magnetic stimulation and i don't know about you i've i've known a number of patients who wear magnets for their arthritis and i've always been very skeptical of this but but the research is there it definitely helps in in depression i don't know what your thoughts on are on this andrew
0: Um, I'm intrigued by many things, um, and I don't know how memory works and how memory is connected to mood, but it is certainly my experience that magnetic therapy can have some benefit uh, that I have observed in a different way to the information from nature. So I think something very curious and interesting is going on. I don't know what the scientists say is the mechanism, but uh, it's something to do with uh retuning information flows or information that has got stuck uh with a negative mood attached i don't know how it works
1: well you're in good company because nobody knows how transcranial magnetic stimulation works um i was i was looking up the research for this and uh from the Mayo Clinic, it, it says the biology of why TMS works isn't completely understood. So we just don't know. That's but a we, polite way of saying they haven't got a clue. It, it is. It is, absolutely. But what we know is is that it does work. And we've got lots of therapies in medicine, haven't we, where we don't understand the mechanism, but the science shows us that it works and it's safe. And that seems to be the case here. So again, it's got nice approval, which is always, always good. So it is a, it's available. And I was having a discussion with our local consultants uh, in Somerset, where again they're keen to expand their service using this, because for for people who are actively suicidal and who haven't responded to other therapies, then just like ECT, this can in some cases be life-saving, and is a lot less unpleasant to go through than ECT. So, it, and they're saying it seems to work in about two-thirds of cases that they've tried. Interesting.
0: How fascinating. So some some good news in depression, uh, and less prescribing generally, but uh, some good news. Anything else? We
1: often, <laughs> I was just going to interject because uh, our, our producer David has put a little comment in the, in the chat bar that um, we often say, oh, the brain's a bit like a computer, isn't it? And he's pointed out that magnets can wipe computer memory. Um, so whether it's the same thing with Uh, with our brains, I don't know. Um, But it it does something. And I don't mind that we don't know how. Um, Just going back a little bit, we were talking about serotonin
0: earlier and and Mm. the correlation between that and mood. And that's very much a chemical theory. But actually, we understand now that cells communicate electronically. And so perhaps there's a much more not just electrics going on in the body with nerves uh, and action potentials, but electronics and that ion exchange channels uh, in the cell walls act like gated transistors. And so, there's a lot more to understand about the software of what's going on, interfacing with the hardware. Perhaps memory and mood is something to do with that. We we will we await the scientific research to help us.
1: Yes, absolutely. But in the meantime, if it's safe and it works, I don't mind that we don't know how. But you're right; it all interconnects, doesn't it? it was back in the nineteenth century, they found that magnetism and electricity were were two forms of the same thing, didn't they? Absolutely, and uh,
0: yes, yes, uh, mesmerism uh, and uh, other other forms of therapy in the nineteen hundreds. But Peter, moving back towards the back to the 20, 21st century uh, and current. News that you've got rather than looking back at the nineteenth century, what else would you like to share with us today?
1: Well, they're looking at new ways of, again, trying to reset the chemicals in the brain. And I've got to be really careful here because the the sort of drugs being studied are still illegal Class A psychedelic drugs. so we, we I'm absolutely not advocating the use of any of these things uh, unsupervised, but, just to sort of keep people in the loop about things that are on the horizon. Um, And a lot of this is around work done by David Nutt, the psychiatrist who I used to work with at Bristol, uh, and he's done a lot of work on, on things. And it seems as though drugs that we discarded back in the 60s because of their risks and their addiction potential, people are now looking at again and saying, well, might they have some value in, again, severe depression, not first line at all, but this um, treatment-resistant depression. So things like LSD, lysergic acid, dithylamine, uh, MDMA, um, and and even things that I think of as being pretty toxic and unpleasant, like ketamine uh, and uh, cannabis, are, are being looked at in very, very controlled situations. And perhaps the most interesting things are the, the psychedelics, the, the magic mushrooms, the mescaline, the LSD. Um, and we all know about the effects of those from people describing the the trips that they've been on. And it looks as though if you can do it in a controlled way with people to guide you and make sure that you, you don't have a really bad experience. And if you take doses that don't fry your brain, as higher doses unfortunately can, then the sort of experiences that people can have when they're on these drugs can be very liberating in terms of them making them feel part of something bigger and part that they're not just stuck in their own brains depressed.
0: So is this for schizophrenia? Is this for depression? Or is this to help people process traumatic uh Memories, And the reason I ask that is because I'm remembering many years ago, uh, 60, 70 years ago, there was a technique called abreaction, which was used for a while to try and help psychosis. And I don't know how much it works. So are we seeing tentative thoughts forwards uh, that are helpful? But, but, but is it for psychosis? Is it for depression or is it for um, traumatic memories, Peter?
1: It's for depression and traumatic memories. So there have been trials on MDMA looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, for instance, uh, and also alcoholism. And and they've been fairly positive. So uh, that's where that's been looked at. Uh, The others, the LSD, mescaline, uh, psilocybin, they're all for treatment-resistant depression. And it it seems as though this out-of-body experience, this feeling of being part of something bigger uh, can have long-lasting effects in terms of jolting us out of our our depression. So would
0: that be a one-off experience, or is it something you'd have to take week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, as one would do with the current range of antidepressants?
1: There are obvious reasons why we wouldn't want it to be long-term, because all of these are potential drugs of abuse. Um, and, And so they need to be taken under very, very controlled conditions. So they're looking at currently at short courses, but they are now... Uh, just beginning to investigate sort of single use uh, and yeah. see what effect that has. Um, because I, I stress again, all these are currently illegal drugs, should not be taken um, from the street or, or without, not, not under medical supervision, and aren't currently licensed for use. They, a couple have been licensed by the FDA, but none in this country. So this is just blue sky, sky stuff um, for the future. Interesting. interesting. Other drug therapies that we might want to touch on, uh, Andrew, if we've got time. Yes, we've
0: got a few minutes left, Peter. So, what other news is there? Is there anything for dementia or is there anything for other areas that you'd like to share with us?
1: Well, as you know, I, I wear a dementia hat as well. And there's some really interesting research going on. So, I'm part of the Demon Network that looks at using AI. Uh, to research dementia, and we're beginning to get a handle on what causes dementia. Now we we know it's to do with the amyloid and tau proteins that build up in the brain. That that's at least part of the answer, uh, even though it's not the whole answer. And and we're now getting this group of drugs coming through that are reducing those proteins, and we're being able to see the effects. So as you know, up to now we've had a couple of drugs. Uh, that that help depression. they improve our memory, probably pushing it back by about six months. But they don't make any difference to uh, to how quickly dementia progresses. Uh, now we've got drugs that seem to actually slow down the rate of progression of dementia,
0: so there are some new medications on the block for dementia that that help reduce the proteins uh, and and actually are starting to give
1: outcome data? Yes, yes, absolutely. So aducanumab was, was the first of these and it reduced the proteins without doing much to um, the clinical benefit. But the more recent ones, Lecanumab, uh, reduces progression by about 27%. And then there's one which is just, they've just released the res- research data on uh, denanumab and that reduces progression by about 34%. So we're right on this cusp and there's another 117 drugs in development. So we're on the cusp of seeing drugs that actually slow down how quickly dementia progresses. Uh, and that's a really exciting time. And I think we'll transform the way we look at dementia. It will.
0: But what can you and I do to help prevent our, our ourselves um, or anyone else? So what are the lifestyle changes we could make? There's something about sleep,
1: isn't there? And there's something about activity. Absolutely. So we can reduce our risk of dementia by 40% with lifestyle changes. And the message is what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So as you say, it's about decent sleep. It's about exercise. It's about a Mediterranean type diet. uh, It's about not being overweight, controlling diabetes, blood pressure, not smoking. And again, evidence just came out in the last week or so. Uh, We've known for a little while that hearing loss is linked to dementia and it's been thought, well, maybe they just share the same causal mechanism. But there's now evidence that if we have hearing loss, then wearing a hearing aid can reduce our risk of dementia by about a half. So that's really quite exciting breaking news. Oh, interesting. That's
0: absolutely fascinating. Peter, you've shared some great news and new ways of thinking about a whole load of um, a number of mental health topics. I think we'd better draw it to a
1: close for today. But that's been absolutely fascinating. And I'm delighted you've, you've allowed me to share this, Andrew. Thank you very much. I'd stress again that some of the things I've been talking about are not available. So don't rush around to your your doctor asking for all of these things. But uh, I, I thought it might be useful for people to see what's on the horizon. Blue sky thinking. And it's always good to, always good to have a vision ahead and a
0: clear path. So thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening and go well. You've been listening to the Somerset emotional wellbeing podcast hosted by our team of doctors from NHS Somerset, including Dr. Andrew Drusida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Cooper. The show was created by David
1: Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.